The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Every year leading up to Christmas, magazines are luring you into buying them with pictures of decadent, colorful baking delights. The holidays are filled with this dessert. Covered in rich royal icing, sprinkles, or just plain, this sweet treat is found on every Christmas table. Round or cut into intricate shapes, this portable morsel is the basis for hundreds of variations. Its rich history starts in the Middle East and travels the world over to settle in the United States. We're exploring the history and origins of the sugar cookie. Welcome to another serving of Seasons Eatings, the podcast which explores the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. Seasons Eatings can be found wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Seasons Eatings is also found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you love the show, then I humbly ask you to share this podcast with someone you think would love to hear more about the history of Christmas and the foods which shape the holiday we love so much. And if you want to give me suggestions for future episodes, just email me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. All the links can be found on the show notes at seasonseatingspodcast.com. A sugar cookie is a cookie with the main ingredients being sugar, flour, butter, eggs, vanilla, and either baking powder or baking soda, depending on the type of sugar used. Sugar cookies may be formed by hand, dropped or rolled, and cut into shapes. They are commonly decorated with additional sugar, icing sugar, sprinkles, or a combination of these. Decorative shapes and figures can be cut into rolled out dough using a cookie cutter. Sugar cookies are one of the most popular and classic treats consumed the world over. The earliest cookie-style cakes are thought to date back to 7th century Persia, now Iran, one of the first countries to cultivate sugar. Luxurious cakes and pastries in large and small versions were well known in the Persian Empire. According to historians, sugar originated either in the lowlands of Bengal or somewhere in Southeast Asia. Sugar spread to Persia and then to the eastern Mediterranean, with the Muslim invasion of Spain, then the Crusades, and the developing spice trade, the cooking techniques and ingredients of Arabia spread into northern Europe. From the website How Sweet It Was, Cane Sugar from the Ancient World to the Elizabethan Period, by Brandy and Courtney Powers, they say in 510 BC, hungry soldiers of the Emperor Darius were near the river Indus when they discovered some reeds which produce honey without bees. Evidently, this early contact with the agent sources of sugar cane made no great impression, so it was left to be rediscovered in 327 BC by Alexander the Great, who spread its culture through Persia and introduced it to the Mediterranean. This was the beginning of one of the best documented products of the Middle Ages. 
by the end of the 14th century, one could buy little filled wafers on the streets of Paris. Renaissance cookbooks were rich in cookie recipes. From the 1596 cookbook called Good Housewife's Jewel by Thomas Dawson, one of the earliest cookery books for the growing middle classes in Elizabethan England. This is a square short cookie enriched with egg yolks and spices baked on parchment paper. To make fine cakes, take fine flour and good damask water. You must have no other liquor but that. Then take sweet butter, two or three yolks of eggs, and a good quantity of sugar, and a few cloves and mace, as your cook's mouth shall serve him, and a little saffron, and a little God's good about a spoonful. If you put in too much, they, th they shall arise. Cut them into squares like unto trenchers, and prick them well and let your oven be well swept, and lay them upon papers, and so set them into the oven. Do not burn them, for if they be three or four days old, they be the better. During the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe, baking was a carefully controlled profession, managed through a series of guilds or professional associations. To become a baker, people had to complete years of an apprenticeship, working through the ranks of apprentice, journeyman, and finally master baker. By having guilds, authorities could easily regulate the amount and quality of goods baked. As technology improved through the Industrial Revolution into the 19th century, so did the abilities of bakers to make a wide range of sweet and savory biscuits for commercial consumption. Despite more varieties becoming available, the essential ingredients of biscuits didn't change. These ingredients are soft wheat flour, which contain less protein than the flour used to bake bread, sugar, and fats such as butter and oil. The first sugar cookies weren't called by this name. When word started spreading throughout Europe in the 17th century about these tasty desserts, and later when they were introduced to the Americas, some entertaining terms were employed to describe these small treats. After all, this child-size indulgence deserves a few whimsical appellations like jumbles, crybabies, plunkets, and gemmels. Early cookie recipes that probably morphed into the modern sugar cookie were called gimblets in France and cymbelines in Italy. A couple hundred years ago, Europeans and Americans had all sorts of wonderful little sweet-baked treats to be eaten out of hand treats we would call cookies, but which they called cakes. Gingerbread, jumbles, strewsberry cakes, and other endless variations on the basic combination of flour, sugar, eggs, butter, and spice. Some were soft, some were hard like biscuits. Some had lots of spice. All had at least a little. Cinnamon, nutmeg, mace, ginger, allspice, occasionally anise or pepper, even caraway or coriander. Some added brandy or sweet wine or rose water and were studded with orange peel and candied citron. Any of these little cakes might be called the ancestor of the sugar cookie, but none really was. Sugar cookies, after all, are plain. They evolved not only from the pack of 18th century small cakes, but strangely enough, in opposition to them. We'll find out how the sugar cookie comes to America after the break. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at HeftyRenew.com. Were you the kid who would sit as close to the TV as possible on Friday night to enjoy the likes of Steve Urkel, Corey Matthews, and DJ Tanner? Do you love Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas? Then I've got the podcast for you. I'm Matt, and I am the host of the TGI Podcast, where we take a trip down memory lane with classic TGIF and TGIF-adjacent shows from the 90s and beyond, and we like to determine whether or not their Halloween, Thanksgiving, or Christmas episodes should be deemed a holiday classic. If they pass the test, they get a... You got it, dude! And if they fail, they're saddled with a... No way, Jose! So if you like all the holidays and some other random dates in between, be sure to give us a listen. Hello, this is Art from A Cozy Christmas Podcast. We're the podcast that explores the coziest stories and memories of Christmas. Join me as I invite you to listen in as I read some of the classic stories of Christmas. Stories like The Gift of the Magi or A Christmas Carol, among many others you may not have heard of before. Sometimes I'll have a guest on and we'll talk about Christmas and the stories that matter to them, like the stories of their favorite Christmas memories and traditions. Sometimes I'm joined by my favorite co-host, my daughter Grace, and we'll talk about and try different Christmas foods, play games, or chat about our favorite Christmas movies and traditions. And also teddy bears. So come on in, make yourself at home, and enjoy all the cozy Christmas stories and more heard here at the Cozy Christmas Podcast. You can find out more at www.cozychristmaspodcast.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The likeliest ancestor of the sugar cookie was actually the creation of Dutch settlers in New York, a little thing they called a kyokje, which simply meant a small cake. They weren't terribly unlike most English cakes, but the New York Dutch made use of an important innovation. They used chemical leavening. The first alkali leavener, pearl ash, came into use at the end of the 18th century in an area around New York City and the first published recipe for cookies, which appeared there in 1796, called for it. We take baking powder and baking soda for granted, but without them you can't attain the crisp, chewy texture that we associated with sugar cookies today. 18th century cakes were baked hard like biscuits, 
or soft and cakey with eggs, or occasionally twice-baked and crisp. But they didn't have the chewy quality of a good cookie. Unfortunately, the Dutch didn't attain that quality either. Chemical leavening let cooks leave out the eggs entirely, use only a little butter, and base the cookie on flour, sugar, and milk, which made them cheap. The cookies were then baked hard for long keeping. In fact, they were said to be better after they had aged in the cellar for six months. They were cheap and fairly dry, and they were flavored very lightly, which also made them cheap in a day when spice was still expensive. One of the earliest recipes that survives calls only for coriander seed, which seems a bit odd to modern palates. Others use caraway, which seems even odder, but was more common at the time. Hard, cheap, unflavored cookies had one good use. They could be molded or cut into shapes and hung on Christmas trees. After that, tradition made its way to England and then to America. In fact, if you want to roll cookies easily and cut them precisely, a rich buttery dough is all wrong. You want something a little tougher. Except as Christmas cookies, though, they didn't catch on quickly. They made better ornaments than desserts, frankly. But the cookie was to get a new life. Because all of the wonderful little cakes of the 18th century were trampled under the march of progress in the 19th. First, as chemical leavening, cheap pans and iron cook stoves made it easier to bake big, frosted layer cakes, the old little cakes seemed less impressive, and fashionable women stopped serving them to guests. Second, the Victorians believed that spice could overly excite the digestive system, and likely other sorts of appetites as well. Especially for growing children, spice was deemed not only unhealthy, but potentially immoral. For family teas and children's treats, then, women still needed something they could bake easily and cheaply, without a lot of fuss and something very plain. Cookies fit the bill perfectly. By the 1870s, plain cookies were common weekday fare in middle-class homes. With a glass of milk, they made perfect snacks for children, or even a quick and, by the standards of the day, nutritious supper so the tots could be packed off the bed before a dinner party. If mother wanted to make her baby's cookies even more nutritious, she might add chopped peanuts or oatmeal. The sugar cookie recipe was perfected by the Moravians, Protestant settlers from Germany who made Nazareth, Pennsylvania their home in the mid-1700s. The Nazareth area of Pennsylvania has provided much of the stimulus for the founding, settlement, and growth of the Commonwealth. The sturdy sugar cookie is baked in the shape of a keystone, the state symbol. As you probably know, the keystone is the stone at the top of an arch, which locks all the other stones in the arch in place. German immigrants were among the first Europeans to set foot in America. They helped establish England's Jamestown settlement in 1608 and the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam, now New York, in 1620. German adventurers can be found roaming the farthest reaches of the New World for many years afterward. It was religious tolerance, though, that first brought large numbers of Germans to North America. During the 17th and 18th centuries, many European powers forced their subjects to follow an 
official state religion. Therefore, when William Penn toured Germany in 1677, spreading the word of a new kind of religious freedom in the American colonies, he found a receptive audience. Many Germans, especially Protestants, were persuaded to join him in his colony of Pennsylvania. Members of smaller sects, who were often persecuted in Europe, were especially eager to escape harassment and German Mennonites, Quakers, and Amish emigrated in substantial numbers. Germantown, Pennsylvania, now part of Philadelphia, was established by 13 Mennonite families in 1683, and thousands of their fellow freethinkers and religious dissenters soon followed suit. Drawn by the prospect of inexpensive land, German immigrants quickly moved to settle on the fringes of the new colonies. Soon, the river valleys of New York and Ohio were dotted with new German towns. Many of these early communities maintain their German character to this day, especially in the Pennsylvania Dutch region. By the way, the term Pennsylvania Dutch was the result of Anglophone mispronunciation of the German word Deutsch, which means German. Eventually, published recipes for the sugar cookie began to appear in the 1800s, some of these early variations include sour cream or large amounts of milk, in addition or in place of the now standard ingredients. This recipe for sugar cookies comes from the February 12, 1857 edition of the Nebraska Advertiser, in which the superintendent of a farmer's table sends in their recipe to improve upon Mrs. Toodle's cookies. Two cups of sugar, two and a half cups of sour cream of the best quality, one teaspoon of soda, spicing as preferred. Mix soft, roll thin, and bake. In delicacy of appearance, agreeableness of flavor, and healthfulness, this cookie is unsurpassed. On November 1st in 1885, the Boston Globe published a recipe for sugar cookies that omitted liquid dairy ingredients included baking powder, and had a ratio of one cup of sugar to one half cup of butter. The other ingredients listed were two well-beaten eggs, a little salt, and flour with lemon and nutmeg. As noted, the lack of any flavoring was common, possibly a hint of nutmeg which could be easily grated, or a squeeze of lemon, but that was all. Even when vanilla extract became widely available in the 1880s, Cooks rarely added it to the cookies, which seemed to have been plain by definition and by design. The name sugar cookies seems to have caught on at the end of the 19th century, possibly to distinguish them from the newfangled things like peanut cookies and oatmeal cookies. The name recalled sugar cakes, which had traditionally been those without any spice. They were sweet and vaguely pleasant, nothing more. Made as they had always been, with milk, baking powder, and usually a minimum amount of baking powder. It was industry and the rise of processed food that prompted the addition of vanilla. Almost as soon as vanilla extract became a pantry staple, artificial vanilla flavor hit the market. Vanilla had been prized for centuries, and nearly everyone loved it, and now the fake stuff was cheap Industrial bakers started adding it to practically everything. First, vanilla wafers sold in barrels, then box cookies of all kinds. 
By the 1920s, it was becoming ubiquitous. And so a flavoring that only decades before had been terribly expensive and difficult to use became plain vanilla. In the original 1930 Joy of Cooking, Irma Rombauer flavored her plain cookies with vanilla extract. Rombauer's cookies look finally like our sugar cookies, but Rombauer called for only two tablespoons of butter and a single egg to three cups of flour, which still meant to be cheap and sweet, nothing more. Cookies were becoming more acceptable adult food, though, for several reasons. The marketing campaigns of companies like Nabisco, the more relaxed culture after 1920, and a revival of interest in, into actually enjoying food, and the probably decline of baking skills, cookies are easier to bake than layer cakes. By the 1950s, grown-up interest would improve cookies. Let's face it, if parents had to eat all the crap they fed their kids to shut them up, they'd chuck half of it into the trash. Betty Crocker's 1948 picture cookie book at least treated a rolled sugar cookie as something you might actually want to eat by adding more fat than milk. Unfortunately, by the 1950s, industrial vegetable shortening had become the fat of choice in cookie baking. You can get away with vegetable shortening in a cookie with flavor, but if you're using cheap or artificial vanilla extract, butter is the only flavor most sugar cookies have. And when Betty Crocker made her sugar cookies with butter, she called them, yes, butter cookies. Not sugar cookies any longer. And decorated them with almond halves to make it clear how fancy they were. Not until the 1880s did butter really start to make its comeback. Which means that, oddly enough, if you really want a really good recipe for the allegedly old-fashioned traditional sugar cookie, you're better off just finding one published in the last... 20 to 30 years. Unless you're going to decorate it, and then of course probably nobody cares what it tastes like. What about that artificially colored sugar anyway? It's called sanding sugar. But sanding sugar was originally what nasty grocers did to save money by literally putting sand in the sugar barrel. By 1910, that old custom had fallen by the wayside thanks to sealed packages and companies eager to preserve the integrity of their brands. New industrial techniques in the 1930s allowed manufacturers to create coarse, evenly textured crystals for decorating purposes, a process described in trade journals on food engineering. Why that was called sanding sugar, I don't know, except that everyone had happily forgotten to use the earlier use of the term. By 1940, its use in decorating seems to have been common and cookbooks and magazines displayed vivid photographs of cookies lavishly decorated with colored sugar. In the late 1950s, Pillsbury began selling pre-mixed refrigerated sugar cookie dough in the U.S. grocery stores as a type of icebox cookie. More recently, House Bill 1892 was introduced on September 5, 2001 to designate and adopt the Nazareth sugar cookie as the official cookie of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. A delegate of nine people from the city of Nazareth traveled to Harrisburg to deliver 350 cookies to the desk legislators, the governor, and the lieutenant governor. So the next time you're out shopping for your next holiday meal and you pass that magazine rack filled with pictures upon pictures of sugar cookies, you can thank our German immigrants.
Thank you for listening to this Serving of Seasons Eatings. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and of course, seasoningpodcast.com. I'm your host, Glenn Warren, and thanks again for listening to this serving of Seasons Eatings. Seasons Eatings is also part of the Christmas Podcast Network. Whatever interest you have with the holidays, there's probably a podcast out there about that topic. You can find Seasons Eatings with all the other podcasts at christmaspodcasts.com. Drop on by to find your next podcast addiction. All music for Seasons Eatings is used under the Creative Commons license.